Hello, welcome back to the Burgers, Beers, Beers and Burgers, Books and Beers podcast. My name is Ben Hobson and I'm here to talk about all of those things. Uh, I'm interviewing the remarkable Bree Lee. Oh man, I tell you what, this chat, um, just got done recording it. She is such a brilliant mind and we talk in great length about one of her favorite books. Um, I really enjoyed this chat. We get into some really deep topics about um, the role of women in society and divorce and the divorce in fiction and the idea of what value memoir has and it's so good. I really enjoyed our chat. Bree and I actually met at Avid Reader at one of the Avid Reader um, events and I think she, can I, I hope I'm, I might not be accurate here, I think she even was there for my my book, well the first book when it came out, I think she was there that night, um, which is so funny to think about because now her books are just, I mean, such an impact on the industry. Uh, Eggshell Skull has been so massive and then Beauty came out in 2019 and just in 2021 she released her third book, Who Gets to Be Smart? But she also writes short fiction, journalism, and she's currently doing a PhD in law at the University of Sydney. Um, she's just so bright, man. I tell you what, having a chat with her is just, uh, it's so much fun. It's such a privilege that I get to do this podcast, read books that people like and talk to them about it. And I think you will be able to sense her enthusiasm as well. Um, yeah, enjoy. Let's get straight into it. So anyway, I'm talking to Bree. Hello, Bree. How are you? Hello, um, Peaks and Troughs, Sydney is in its ninth week of lockdown. Um, I got my first dose of the vaccine on Friday, so I'm in Peaks at the moment because I'm thrilled. By the I saw you ran 10 kilometres straight after having the vaccine or something, right? No, uh, well, uh, I will caveat that. Not quite 10 kilometres and not quite straight after. Um, it no. did. I, I did have some of the very, like, standard mild to medium side effects on like the Friday and the Saturday but yeah. today was Monday and I ran nine point something so yes fun. I feel like that needs celebrating regardless of the vaccine or not like that's ridiculous thank you very fit. I'm tr- I, there was a there was a time in my younger life when I could run 10ks in an hour and I'm just like made it this absurd lockdown goal to see if I can do it again and, good on uh, you that's amazing because uh, I've, I've, I was, I had a bit of a, like the last couple of weeks of we've had in my house, my wife was sick and then I was sick and, you know, we went and got tested and it wasn't COVID, but it was like this lingering cold where you just feel yuck. You know how you just feel yuck. And I mean, it sounds silly to whine about it because it's such a small thing in the world we live in today. But I feel like it just, it made all of the goals and ambitions and all the things that I really love to do and feel fulfilled by just went out the window because I was running and I was, you know, exercising and I was writing. But as soon as you get like, I just had like a, a slight thing, but it just, you know, everything went up in the air. I just felt like I could, I can't be bothered anymore. But I feel you like know, lockdown, I feel like, comes... I feel like lockdown do that. No, no, it's okay. Like okay. lockdowns, that sort of thing to me. And I mean, in Queensland, we've had it fairly easy, but it's so easy to get, I guess, yeah, to, to, to lose a bit of focus. So it's awesome that you're continuing with your goals despite lockdown, I guess. Oh, yeah. But like, I mean, peaks and troughs. I had, yeah. it was about four, three week, three or four weeks ago, I had a fortnight where I was just bummed, couldn't get motivated, even though yeah. I had a ton of work due. And 
Um, part of it was because I'd had like yet another trip home to see my family in Brisbane cancelled. Oh. And um, well, actually, also it was like just there was a time when I was really down because the second half of my book tour got cancelled or not cancelled, I should say, you know, people um, got moved on. Yeah. 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 Um, And, and I say this, you know, just like you did with caveats where I am, I, I think it is an absolute fluke and I am so grateful that I got to tour at all for the first two, two to three weeks. Yeah. That is so lucky. I've watched now. Yeah. I've now. And so like, the sort of first two to three weeks of mine were able to go ahead and the second two or three weeks had to be um, moved online or just sort of cancelled. Um, but I've now seen authors, many, many authors of incredible books not be able to tour at all. Yeah. So yeah. it's sort of like it's, it's exactly what you just said about help where, yes, on the one hand, your suffering, our suffering might not be as acute as some, Yes. But on the other hand, there are still things to mourn. Like there are still yeah. things that are difficult to For grapple sure. with and overcome. Like Yeah, I think there's yeah. a part of me that likes to sort of, I guess, not grant myself the the idea that, yeah, it's like some of the things that happen to me suck a little bit. Like I feel like I've got this thing where I try to gloss over it because I don't want to appear like I'm whining or complaining about stuff. But, yeah, like sometimes it does some things do hurt, I guess. And and I guess we're speaking from a place of, you know, speaking from a place of privilege with, you know, having books out and things like that. Like there's probably a lot of people listening to the podcast who, who don't even get to that stage and, and mourn missed opportunities and things like that. It's hard. Hey, it's hard to talk about it without sounding. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm whining. I guess that's a, a thing that I feel like I could be doing even right now. Do you think that? Like, what do you think about that? I think if a feeling is felt, then it's real. So it's not really possible for any one yeah. individual to try to argue or contest if somebody else says that they feel that in pain or they feel some kind of suffering or they feel some kind of deep sadness. Yeah. You can't, like, feelings are real yeah. <laughs> when you have them like you yeah. can't and you can't always control them and it's healthy to try to overlay a sense of logic and rationale and reason on top of that and to mm. try to take an attitude of gratitude and to try and maintain perspective but at the end of the day if you're feeling sad if you're feeling in pain if you're feeling wounded that's it like you yeah. can't rationale your way out of that always no i agree with that Man, you're so good. I, I want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you more often. <laughs> Tell you what. This has become therapy with Bree. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you. So excited. Um, so we're here. We're talking about a very important book to Bree, which we'll introduce in just a second. But uh, you, I see you, you have a drink. We normally start talking about, because it's books, beers, and burgers. You don't have a beer. You have a wine. Can you tell us about your wine? Um, I I can and I can't. I love drinking wine and I know nothing about it. I don't pretend to. I know the wine I do and don't like. Uh, Uh, I know, for example, that I do not like Chardonnay. I don't know why. Um, I went went on Friday. Yes, this is red. I'm drinking now. On Friday, I had just had my vaccine and I was on this like 
buzzing high. I was just so thrilled to be able to have my first dose and, 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 you know, I had just mm. dropped some delicious pastries and freshly baked sourdough to a friend of mine who was in hotel quarantine. Oh. And I realized I was in the city and there was this really fancy bottle over there. And I walked in and I said, here is one type and brand of wine I know I like, and it's Sigurd Red Blend. Yeah. I said, I don't know about wine. Sell me wines that I that somebody who likes that wine would like. <laughs> it's basically that Futurama meme of like, shut up and take my money. Take my money, <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah, I left with this bottle of wine, uh, which is also a red blend. And that's all I can say is the colour <laughs> it is. <laughs> but it's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. That's yeah. funny, man. Like I, I'm, I'm actually kind of the same with beers. I just like certain ones, and I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I got this one because it's made in Belgium, or it's a Belgium, I should say. Um, mm. So I thought it was sort of in keeping with the European flair of the book, or just the flair. Ah, uh, I don't know whether that makes any sense. Um, so uh, I wanted to talk. Now the book we're talking about is called Outline by Rachel Cusk. Um, can I say, I don't know whether or not I'm sheltered or what have you, hadn't heard of this book, which I know is sounds silly, because since I've read it, I see it again and again, like on authors' yeah. like top 10 lists. And I saw Cass Moriarty the other day posted, I just got this book, I'm really excited to read it. Seems to be this work that most people have read, have devoured, have some relationship with. Um, can I just ask, what made you choose this book? Because when I ask authors, I say, choose any book at all to talk about. What was it about this book or this trilogy that um, made you mm. want to talk about it today? Two things. The first is that I just really like talking about it. I think it's a really, like, chewy book to be able to speak about with another human being. Because, you mm. know, you can read some books and you have a you know, deep and profound experience of them for yourself, but that doesn't yep. necessarily mean they make great conversation with someone else. Um, um, so I really appreciate any opportunity to talk to someone about this book slash trilogy. Yeah. Um, and also there have been very few times in my adult life that I have been truly surprised by a work of art of any kind. Mm. Um, and I mean surprised in like not as in, you know, I've been surprised many times by like murder mystery plots and twists. I mean surprised as in like I feel like I'm encountering a form or an expression that I haven't seen before. Something different. And pretty yeah. much, yeah, something different. And it is so rare in life to be truly surprised that way and more yeah. and more I find it to just be like this rush that I'm seeking and so rarely confined and one of the only one of the only other times I felt that sort of exquisite feeling um was when I saw Hamilton in New York <laughs> on Broadway nice and it's just like a, a sense of for sure I know I have just like I, I will always wish that I could unsee that or unread yeah. that and, have and, it again. and go and have it again for the first yeah. time. That's awesome. I, I do agree with you about this book. Like it seems to, and, you know, we'll get into it obviously eventually as well. I want to talk a bit about Rachel as well, if that's okay, before we get mm. too far into it. But it seems Please. to sort of like take, it says, here's a book 
and it sort of shows you the form of a book and it shows you what a book's supposed to be. And then somehow she sort of just like swipes all that aside and sort of starts talking to you directly. And I find that 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 thing where you start to go, oh, I wasn't okay. And I guess I'm t- this is not what I expected. And it's this weird sense of, I guess, honesty, which I'm not sure I find in a lot of novels. Is that sort mm. of what your experience of it was? Yeah, because it's, yes, it's a novel in the sense that it is a sort of work of fiction in a shape of a book with a protagonist, if we're going to be sort of generous and call this whoever this, you know, woman is that we follow through. And I say be generous um, for anyone who hasn't read it yet. We learn almost nothing directly about the protagonist yeah um so it's not a protagonist in the sense of the traditional sense of like a main character or like a person with whom the reader makes a deep emotional connection to and is therefore invested in their ups and downs trials and tribulations challenges and outcomes it's not like that um and it's just oh it's so different it's like she i used to think when I first read it, that it was like she'd taken the idea of a novel and just sort of poured acid on top of it and mm. it ate away all of this, this excess. But now what I feel like after I, so I went and listened to like every single result that I got when I put Rachel Cusk into the Spotify search function. So I've listened to, I think, every single like freely available podcast in which she's been interviewed for the last few years. Wow. Um And I realized by listening to her talk about her craft that actually it's, it's, it's more than that. It's completely sort of like inverting and gutting and turning inside out the idea of a novel and what it sort of should be or what it's supposed to be. And what she talks about is completely losing faith in things like character in inverted commas and plot in inverted commas yep. and seeing how those things for her in her life were farcical, um, but also how the novel has just been, the novel as in almost like capital T, capital N as this like form yeah. has just been the same for so long and like her questioning what function that still serves. Yeah. Man, um, I actually found just on what you're saying, I found a quote from her. She's like, I've, I also sort of devoured a lot of her interviews and things because she's just so interesting. Mm. And um, in the in the actual article, I haven't got the quote here, but I think they described her as effortlessly controversial. <laughs> like she'll just say these offhand things, and 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 people will start to take up arms against her. Um, but the quote reads: That's this, because she's a woman talking about motherhood and wifedom. I've if a man said that, that stuff about too. fatherhood and being a husband. Yeah, he I've got a bit yeah. about that too because that was from her her book. Um, what was it? It started with an A. It was the biography. Or, yes, and that one got a huge amount of backlash um, and heaps of critique, which I've got some quotes on as well. But just before we get there, um, yeah. she said this. For almost three years, she could not write, she could not read. This is about Rachel. Novels seemed especially pointless. She felt fiction was, and this is her quote, fake and embarrassing. 
Once you have suffered sufficiently, the idea of making up John and Jane and having them do things together seems utterly ridiculous, which made me feel bad because I'm like, that's what I do. <laughs> I'm like, she's actually accurate there. Yet my mode of autobiography had come to an end. I could not do it without being misunderstood and making people angry, which is about aftermath. Mm. Um, before we get into aftermath, because I would like to talk about it a little bit, um, do you feel like that's true about the traditional novel? How do you feel about the traditional novel? Do you agree with Rachel's summation there that it can't get at a type of, it, it feels like she's saying that it's not getting to a type of authenticity that this sort of new form she's presenting us with is able to do. My God, isn't this the most fucking interesting question we could be <laughs> asking ourselves, which is why I love talking about Rachel Cusk. Like, yep. can the novel do what we all, like, this is what it is for me as well. Can the novel do what we all collectively keep maintaining and regurgitating to each other that it is doing? Yeah. Yeah, what we hope it like, can do. What we hope it can do and what we, this like uh, collective suspension of disbelief that the novel is still doing it. Yep. Um, and mm, I think, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I feel like we have only in the last maybe five to ten years started seeing fiction actually written by all different kinds of people be available in a mainstream sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's very, like, as English-speaking white authors, it's very rich to sort of say, oh, the novel has no function anymore. The novel's well, you know, dead now, yes. Mm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so I certainly would not suggest that and I but I what I would say is that and this is also why Cusk is so interesting is that the like with the development of the novel and the development of like the individual interior life is just so inextricably connected to gender and the sort of uh, private versus public sphere and all these sort of traditional ideas and all these traditional archetypes. Mm. Um, and I think it's very interesting that, like, Rachel Cusk for me represents someone who is bucking that idea of the novel and what the novel can achieve and questioning what the novel can achieve and is also someone who is constantly grappling with gender and power. Yeah. And so... What I would say is I have also become suspicious, even in nonfiction in recent years, of the introduction, middle, climax, resolution requirement. The traditional plot structure and the way yeah. the protagonist has to be active. And yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. yeah, I think it, I, I, I think it limits our ability to capture human experience sometimes. Yeah. I think well, it, can feel, it, it can feel manipulative to me. Like it can feel mm. when you can sense where, like you're watching a film and you're like, okay, we're in the middle of act two and now the thing climax is going to happen. And then the act three push to the end. It can feel fake. I think. Yeah. Right. It feels like so, you're, 
authors just making it easy for us. Whereas this book's mm. not, I wouldn't say is an easy book. It's quite complex. Yeah, but then it's also like I think about this and I think um, there's also a huge difference between people, I shouldn't say it's not the people, it's like what people are looking for in a book. Yeah. And for any one of us, that can also change on a book you read on a Tuesday compared to a book you read on a Sunday at the beach. Like, do you want a book for escapism? Or the way I imagine it more is that some books require us to meet them in the middle. And some books are more like TV and movies where it will come all the way up to you and yeah. just give you Everything. its content. Yeah. Um, and so I also think that as a reader, my personal appetite is like for a bit of everything sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably like what Cusk said that she could no longer sort of, she no longer almost like had a stomach for yeah. the easy version. And that's not to say that the hard version is like eating your vegetables, because if you are in a headspace and willing to meet a book in the middle, that can be like one of the most enriching and and energizing and in like enlivening art experiences. Um, I agree. It sort of, it does a different yeah. thing than just entertain. Like, you know, I love books that just, you know, popcorn thrillers and, you know, you can just read them cover to cover and flip through them so quickly because you're so engaged. And I really mm. love that stuff. Like I love devouring. I love Die Hard, you know, but there is something fulfilling about reading something that's, making you think on a different level about things in a way that you hadn't thought before. You feel like you say enriched in a, in a way that maybe the entertainment novel uh, might struggle to, to get to, I guess. And I, I think that's very true of outline. It's something that's really sat with me. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess made me start. I also to think, sorry, it's a really lazy distinction to suggest that like this distinction we're making I think is not does not necessarily at all correlate to like genre. No. I think people often yeah, as like a lazy shorthand, people will be like, oh well, one of those things she's describing is literary fiction, one of them genre fiction. I just I don't agree with that at all. No, I I've think read literary some, fiction is yeah, can I've be read just thrillers and fantasy books that make me think more deeply than a lot of literary fiction. Um, yeah, I think that, I think, yeah, exactly right. It's not definitely not a genre thing. I think it's just, like you say, it's sort of what the author's aiming at, I guess, mm. more than maybe than what we're, what we're reading. Like, do you think that the, the, the book is more to do with the way a person reads it? I definitely think that it's taste. Like, like you say, you can be interested in one thing on, you know, I, I'll, you know, on the beach, I want to read something easy and quick. But in my daily morning, when I have my coffee, maybe I'm reading something that's a bit more rich and thoughtful. Um, so I think our tastes can definitely change a little bit with that stuff, but it's definitely about, I've completely lost my train of thought. That's all right. The other thing I really should admit to is that for whatever reason, I love divorce narratives. <laughs> <laughs> really? And I I think, yeah, so, and like, mm, to be honest, perhaps one reason for that, or not reason, but um, I can so enjoy reading them is because I'm actually in a very happy 
relationship with my husband at present. Like, because there are no issues with my relationship, I'm able to consume divorce narratives like popcorn, you know, yeah, or, or just like something sort of thing, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, they don't, they don't pick at anything that I'm particularly insecure about. But for some reason, well, I've been thinking about this coming ready to talk to you tonight. I mm-hmm. think divorce often is a point in time where an adult is forced to sit with like lies that they have told themselves and or lies that they have told other people and or lies that they have been told by society. Mm. And in 2021, particularly with regard to gender relations, like particularly with regard to power dynamics, I just feel like divorce is such like fecund fertile ground for for character and plot. I mean, it just says so much, like two people who previously made this ostensibly unbreakable or, or at least, you know, enormous commitment to spend their entire lives together have gone, have undergone such significant character development, i.e. personal change, either one of them or both of them, that that single biggest promise that they made, they are willing to break. And then I just think about all of the legal ramifications and all of the economic ramifications and what a huge undertaking it is to make that split. Um, And how statistically speaking, women are far more likely to end relationships than men. And what that means, what it means about like caregiving obligations, does it mean anything or does it not mean anything that now in Australia, for example, that we have gay marriage, like what is it? Ah, Just divorce is this absolute rich arena that I think I could just read for the rest of my life. Yeah. And yeah, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was I was um, teaching today. I'm a music and English teacher, and I was teaching a song by Radiohead um, called "Daydreaming." I don't know whether you know Radiohead that well. Oh, um, Radiohead, yes, but I don't know Daydreaming. Well, it was one one of the more recent songs. Was, I love the song, but it was written in the wake of Tom York's um, divorce, and in the the video clip, which is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, it's him sort of walking from room to room, like searching for something that we don't know. And to me, I always take it as he's sort of searching for who he is now, that he's mm. this person who's, and in the end, there's this weird echoey kind of reversed, it sounds like a record going backwards. But when you break it down, it says something like half my life, half my love. So he was 46 years old when he got divorced and he got married at 23. And so the idea of like, I am now this new, I'm this person who has been built with this other person. For 23 years, I was husband of this person. We were a unit. And then now I'm this person who doesn't have this other half. Like it must be so revealing, I guess. Um, I've never thought about like divorce as a subject to read on like I don't I wouldn't know like if you had to name like a top five divorce novels I wouldn't know what would be on the list I think it's also one of the reasons um why 
play like some of the best plays and plays are often set as dinner parties because they are in the domestic and typically hetero with a husband and wife yeah. who are, if not on track to divorce, we wonder will they won't then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because it's also just like how many times do you have the opportunity as an author like slash narrator, you know, this like omnipotent, omniscient God of the narrative to have two characters who know everything about each other, the, each other's desires and each other's strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. That is so much power. And that's why like society is finally coming to realise how devastating that is in abusive situations in particular, for example. Um, yeah. But just even purely for dialogue, like, oh, mm, chef's kiss. Like that is, like, if what you're looking for is drama and revealing things about human nature, best and worst, it's all yeah. there, divorce. Yeah, tell you what, I agree with you. Um, to go back to um, Aftermath, which I'm sure that you'd mm. be able to talk a bit more. I haven't read it. I'm sure you've read Aftermath. Is that right? I've not yet. I'm, okay. It's sitting there because I almost, so I've, I've deliberately not read it because I've probably read all of and more of like the interviews that you've read. And yeah. Aftermath is her memoir of her divorce. Yes. Um, and I have just heard her talk for hours about how she was so brutally like eviscerated by the press and by readers um, who read that book and basically think that she's a, bad mum and a bad woman and yeah. a shit human being um very judgmental such, yeah yeah such that she like changed her art form because it was so horrific yeah well i've got a quote from her and it says um the memoir received vitriolic reviews describing cusk as a peerless narcissist and a self-pitying idiot and Cusk admitted in an interview that she was affected. She was affected deeply by the harsh readings and she said it was creative death. And she said she couldn't even write for three years after getting all, all that feedback from that book. Um, it seemed it sounded like, because I haven't read it, but it seems like she just wrote a book, an honest book from her perspective. And yet there was this thing that happened where everyone just started to judge and like sort of condemn her morally for for admitting things, I guess, that probably everyone goes through. I don't yeah, know, what's your take on that book? Well, that's why I don't know why I haven't. I love her work so much and I have bought that book and I keep going to pick it up and I'm just too afraid of feeling dismayed by the general public because my sense of the rest of her. People. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, what it is um, because my sense of the rest of her body of work or that, that I've engaged with and having listened to her speak for hours is that she is too observant to be as, like, for example, the charge of narcissism. You can't really, like, if you are that really self-absorbed and wrapped up in yourself, it, like, I can't imagine how you could then be so exquisitely observant about the human nature and behaviour and attitudes of other people around you. Like, she sees all in the way that we admire people like Janet Malcolm for being able to do that observing, watching eye. Yeah. Um, and I think 
I am prepared to side with her in what I read in Aftermath. <laughs> and and actually now that I'm thinking about it and speaking to you, I'd not previously realised this, like it makes me afraid. If I read Aftermath and think that her position is a, you know, interesting, reasonable, defensible one, um, I mean, what does that tell me as a woman who's writing sometimes from the first person it's just like people hate women and no more frequently do they hate them than when they are quote unquote bad mothers motherhood is the apex of all stereotypes that women are held to and motherhood in my experience is like people who claim or believe that they are progressive in many other ways, like the, the place where you can tell the most about a person's attitude towards women is the way they have beliefs about mothers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I say, I like, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know whether this will sound, whatever, I'll just say the thing that I feel. Um, <laughs> but I th- even I felt like a little bit of that sort of thing when we you know when we first had our children like the number of times you would say to someone okay well I'm gonna I'm gonna discipline my kids this way or I just you know I'm going to not discipline my kids this way or this is our bedtime routine or we're going to go to um formula this at this time and like every single one of those decisions you get opinions from a thousand different people and it's like a moral type of judgment versus a Oh, well, have you, you know, have you thought about this? It's not, have you thought about this? It's you are wrong and you are a bad person for doing it that way. And like, that's mm. probably just a snippet of what mothers have to deal with, I imagine. Yeah. I just can't begin to imagine how, but it also like, I think one of the reasons I also haven't read Aftermath yet is because um, like, this sounds so brutal and, but I just like I'm so disappointed in Cusk that she's such an incredibly strong writer and artist, and that she would let public sentiment get to her like that. Sounds like um, it really did. Yeah, it sounds like it did. Like she would not. I don't think she's a person prone to hyperbole. Like if she says right. it led to a sort of artistic death of her for several years, I I believe her. Um, and it's just so devastating to think that one of the greats could be brought down by such small minds, right? Yeah, like that's just is, yeah. everything about everything about that is terrifying <laughs> to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's the idea. Like when, you, when you're creating something, the idea, or at least to me, is you try to push aside every single expectation even you have on your art, but every person outside like wants this and this wants this and this wants this and you think you should do this for this market and all those sorts of things. And you got this on a review. In my mind, the ideal is like you're not listening to any of that. You're not listening even to your own sort of questioning. You're just creating in this type of flow where it's just coming out naturally what you want to say. Um, I don't think I've ever achieved that and... You know, I always think that that's the ideal. But, yeah, it would be quite, I guess, sad for Rachel if that's where she went, like where she, it, it for three years, devastated her so much that her art shifted, you know, as a result. That's like. 
But also, right, we're seeing this and it is devastating. Obviously, she had a really shit time and that sucks and whatever struggles to work for three years. But what came out the other side was like her magnum opus that we know of so far, the Outline Trilogy. So also, like through, like, you might not, we might not have received the Outline Trilogy if not for the adversity that came in the aftermath of Aftermath. She did talk about the value of suffering. I just like well, like yeah. Hey, can I can I ask? Just going back to what we were talking about, because we were talking about aftermath and its value as a memoir. Uh, what do you think the like? What's the job of a memoir? What is the purpose of it? Because I don't feel to me, and I don't know much about the form. If I'm being, I always try to be honest, but if I'm being honest. But it doesn't feel like I'm reading it to have like a moral stance on a on an issue. A memoir should be an honest account of a person's inner life and their journey. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Like I'm, I feel like if she was, if she had negative thoughts about motherhood, or if she said, if she felt this way, like isn't it better that she was honest versus trying to conform to like an idea of what people thought a good mother should be? Like I, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that's why, like, people are so shit about mums because they yeah. just, like, can't get past this idea that once somebody becomes a mother, they will not burn away every other aspect of their identity. Um, but to answer your question on what the memoir is supposed to do, mm. I think all books um, sort of, I guess, have this balance between telling you things and entertaining you, and that can be, like, a... 90%, 10% balance or, you know, 50-50 or whatever. Yeah. But as somebody who receives a huge amount of correspondence or what I consider to be a huge amount of correspondence from readers of my memoir, yeah, I think one, now that I think about it, one of the um, most clear through lines, even when people don't say it, is just that um, reading a memoir, reading that memoir made them feel less alone. Yeah, made them feel of... like they weren't the only one. Made and that it's not just because my memoir happens to be about. I truly believe that's not just because my memoir happens to be about like dramatic things that people normally keep a secret. I think even like sort of celebrity memoir or sporting memoir or like other things. Yeah, it's the intimacy that you feel like you are spending and in a way you are spending 10, 15, 20, 30 hours with another human being. And there is a shared sense of humanity there that gives you a sense of relief and mm. connectedness. That's yeah. I, I, I pay that. Like, I think that sounds accurate, but then that's what it sounds like aftermath was doing. Like it sounds yeah, like because people are fucking terrified that they are bad mums. They're terrified that they yeah. had bad mums. They're terrified about what will happen to society. If other women start behaving like bad mums. Yeah. Like it's just fear and pathetic small mindedness. Yeah. Which is real. Sorry. Real... <laughs> really... no, no, I totally understand. Like when you, when you think about that thing, like, that there would be mothers who read that book and internally feel this type of, like you say, I'm not alone in this. Like, it feels like this person really understands these like really complex emotions that I go through. But then on the surface, they feel they have to then say, well, I didn't like that because she didn't do this this way. And you know what I mean? The thing that gives me the most nightmares 
Cusk in one of these pub, pub podcasts that I listened to said the thing that like, and she used it as an example of one of the things that really like knifed her. She received an email from a mother who said, I, upon reading your book, like felt all of that, you know, like what I just described, like that sense of connectedness, a feeling of relief that you are not alone in the things that you are struggling with and, and, and all of that. Yeah. And then this woman who wrote to Cusk said, and now that I have seen how you have been crucified publicly, I know that I can never express those feelings. Myself. Oh man. That's so, oh, that's so sad. How devastating is that? Yeah. So then if you're Cusk and you have told your truth and you know for a fact that it is telling the truths of at least some other people and those other people are seeing how horrifically you are being treated that they feel like they will now have to go through the rest of their lives not speaking their truths. How are you supposed to, how are you supposed to sit with that? How are you supposed yeah. to feel about that? It's, type of, it's a type of condemnation you would sit with every yeah. day. Yeah, it's awful. And it's not her, obviously not her problem, fault, responsibility, but like, no. my God, what do you, yeah. Yeah. Know. I guess that's one way that maybe Aftermath was stepping outside of the window of kind of accepted moral discourse and that maybe one day, hopefully in the future, the window will have shifted so that, you know, people can talk about these sorts of things and that book will be seen as a type of triumph of, you know, first through the barrier sort of thing, you hope, right? And you know what? Sorry, I just, I was thinking about no. this the other day. Um, the thing that it made me, like, feel it was a bit analogous was that when Philip Roth first published Portnoy's Complaint, he got absolutely skewered by a huge portion of the Jewish community who said that he had, like, set the sort of, you know, fight against anti-Semitism back by presenting a Jewish mm. young man, boy, whatever, as like, you know, obsessed with like masturbation and having this, you know, nagging neurotic Jewish mom and, and, and all of these things. Like basically he was accused of, of, I suppose what we would like now describe as internalized um, anti-Semitism sure. like, yeah. by publishing a book at a time in society when Jewish people were still fighting for just like, not that they're not anymore, but, you know, back then fighting for like more equality and, and respect. And he went and published this book in which Jewish people were not present, presented purely in a flattering light. Um, yeah. And now we consider like what describing like the kind of subject matter of porno's complaint, like that's nothing. Um, yeah. And Roth, to my knowledge, never had a creative death and yeah. couldn't write for three years. You know, the way something clearly happened with Cusk being skewered by the critiques of her know. mothering or wifedom. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's just something I, th I don't know what I feel about that. No, it's very complex. I appreciate talking about it in a way. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer at all, but it's obviously... Um, a very interesting thing that I think it's worth having discussions about more than hiding away from that sort of thing. Um, just to move on to the actual book, because we've sort of had a bit of a chat about Rachel, <laughs> which I love. This is the whole point of this. 
Um, but outline, let's, I just wanted to go through what it is um, and just have a quick chat about, you know, the actual um, book. Um, so the book is about, I mean, it's not really about anything super concrete, like there's no sort of structure of plot or anything like that, but this, this, um, this writer is going to Athens and she is teaching a writing class there. And that's kind of the summation of the whole book. Yeah. Um, and then she encounters people and then she sort of listens to their stories in this way that's very observational, but also this type of questioning, I guess, where she sort of starts to pick apart whether or not their stories are the full story. Um, yeah. Is that how you'd describe it? How would you describe the book? Yeah, I was really looking forward to hearing what you said when you said this book is about. I was like, tell me, please. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say it's like, um, so yes, it's a woman. She has, we know almost nothing about her um, and we never really see her internal landscape. Like we never um, no. see, we're never told like sort of really what she's thinking or feeling the only things we come to know about her are essentially things that we may be able to intuit based on what she decides to tell us about what she has heard from other people. Yeah. Which is such a convoluted way of trying to explain what I found so revolutionary and breathtaking about Outline, which is this sort of complete marriage of form and content. Like um, it's almost presented in um, a series of sort of vignettes, I guess, or scenes. Yeah. And most of them, the vast majority involve this protagonist meeting one or two other people who tell her a story. Yeah. And that's all we get, really, is the stories that other people tell her. Yeah, but it's and, sort of filtered through her. Yeah. And yeah. so over time, for example, um, uh, uh, just a huge number of the stories are about relationship breakdowns of some kind. Yeah, I think and most so, of them, really. Yeah, most, if not all, are yeah. about relationship breakdowns. And so there, for one obvious example, you have this you know, we're following this woman for a significant amount of time and the stories that she chooses to tell the reader are the ones about relationship breakdowns. Yeah. So what does that tell us? You know, like, but she, we never, you know, it's never written on the page. I was going through a divorce and so I felt like this and did this. Mm -hmm. Like it just, I don't know, it's just like so incredible in the way it does that. And also the other thing it does is, um, a lot of the people she speaks to are speaking English as a second language. And so there's this sense throughout that um, I, I feel like I heard Cusk herself describe it once as this kind of like universal English because it's not the English that develops in any particular like time or geography yeah. that happens in a English first language situation. 
it's this kind of like pared back um, sort of words that are required to communicate clearly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's something special about that as well. And we know you can sort of just tell after reading a whole book of it that our protagonist speaks English as a first language, but that the vast majority of people she's speaking to don't. And it's just this such subtle. Yeah, she's very subtle. She does this thing where she sort of like uses direct quotes only sometimes, but a lot of the stories are then sort of internalized through her. And so she would say things like he, he said to me that he had once and then we get his story filtered through her and the things he'd done mm. in his story filtered through her, which I think is really, really interesting. It's almost like a summation. Like it's like it's like we're one further step to remove. Like if the conversation was just the dialogue between the two of them and, you know, when she's mm. on the plane sitting next to the neighbour, like, and they were doing all the sort of planey things where the hostess comes down and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um I feel like it would be different. Like, I feel like I don't think I would have taken the same things from the book. It's sort of like, like you say, we're getting the idea that she's framing these things specifically for us. And it's sort of like she is finding who she is through the stories of the others. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. And, And part of that process is like getting rid of all unnecessary information. No aesthetic clutter. Don't give a shit if it's like a beautiful crimson sunset outside. Don't give a shit if it's like cold first thing in the morning. None of that extraneous detail is necessary for us to understand the truths and lies we tell ourselves and about each other. Mm -hmm. It's just so brutal. Yeah. But it's also just so like beautifully written. Somehow it does both. Yeah. Um, there was this this really interesting, so she has sort of, I think it's like three encounters with her neighbour. She keeps calling him her neighbour because um, they sat next to each other on the flight over to Athens. Um, so she has, I think, three encounters with this guy. And that was the first time, like she sort of introduces you in how to read the novel in that first little encounter with him because he tells this long story about... Um, how he went, he had two divorces, he had two ex-wives. And the first one is this angelic, beautiful thing. And like, why did I ever leave her and all this sort of stuff. And the second wife is this demon who, you know, who's out to kill his kids and locked his kid in a basement and things like that. And as he's telling the story or she's, you know, summarizing his story, I found myself just like on on track, like with the book, like, okay, the book's presenting me with this. I don't like the second wife. I like the first wife, etc., etc. But then she does this thing where she starts to question him and starts to go, well, surely she wasn't that mean. And he's like, oh, no, I kind of fudged a few things there to sort of make the story sound a bit better and make myself, you know, like, and she's, she starts to poke at the idea of like the way we say, the way we tell, it's not the story that we, that, about who we are, that's important. Like, that's not what it is. It's like what we tell ourselves, what we tell other people that sort of forms our idea of ourselves. Do you think that's mm. like an accurate reading? Like, did you get that from it? Yes. And I think a really um, important aspect of that and why I feel like what you just said rings true is that for so many people, it seems um, that a part of the divorce process is 
being able to say who was the goodie and who was the baddie and because yeah and because like it seems like people who are married are married for a while you end up having like overlapping friendship groups and people often feel they have to like decide which they're still going to be friends with and you're fighting for who the kids think sometimes is the goodie parent and the baddie parent yeah and if you can't like part of the reason divorce is necessary, it seems, in a lot of these stories is because the two individuals involved are not telling the same story anymore. Hmm. They're not on the same page about sort of when forces them, and yeah. yeah. And so it's just like the, the thing I'll never forget about the final um, meeting of that guy that neighbor who i just absolutely detest (laughs) is um she has agreed to go out on his boat because he's offered to just sort of take her on a tour of the area and and um you know she said yes and and certainly there have been no um i don't know she hasn't she hasn't made any sort of flirtatious overtures it's just two people meeting on the way to a place and he just sort of says i'm pretty much alone at the moment and i've got a beautiful boat do you want me to just like show you around she says yes and then there's this scene where he is like sort of propositioning her out in the middle of the ocean where they are alone and he is still holding a knife in his hand yeah like either having just or just about to gut a fish yeah and it just i remember reading it and almost thinking that i had misread it because she had cusk had done so much in two sentences to show how and that's a good example of what she's able to do in outline in general as well where all she tells us is like the setting what he has said and that he's still holding the knife yeah and we do not hear i am afraid we do not hear i can't believe he doesn't realize how intimidating that is we don't need to hear any of that internally we we receive all of the information we need to because he is such a fucking dickhead (laughs) like it's just i don't know she's so good yeah she is pretty good at that yeah i agree and there's that scene too I, i i for some reason, I've forgotten the knife, but the thing that struck me about that was when she was forced to sit in the back of the boat and he took off and, like, he had no shirt on and in an effort to impress her, he, like, revved the boat and gunned it and she almost flipped off the back. Mm. But, like, and then she, she looks up at him and realises that he wouldn't have even noticed. Like, if he'd, she'd gone overboard, she'd just be drowning. Like, there's no, she doesn't care anything about her. And she didn't say that. Yeah. Didn't put in there, he doesn't care anything about me. She doesn't connect the dots for us. Mm -hmm. She sort of just leaves it. That's what I mean about a book that requires you to meet it in the middle and how incredibly satisfying it is when you do. It feels like I'm respected a little bit and I'm like, I'm the one. It's like instead of being, yeah, it's it's the whole thing. Instead of being told how to feel about a thing, I'm just feeling the thing because I'm experiencing the thing. It's much different. There's actually a really great quote I've pulled out from this. I mean, the whole book is so beautifully written and so, so uh, like, I wouldn't say simple, but just clear. Like it's very, it's got a lot of clarity in it. Uh, there's this little moment here, which I really liked. Um, 
So she's on the boat with the neighbor and I don't really remember, but she, she looks over and they see this family on another boat and all these kids are sort of splashing around. And she starts to remember a scene from Wuthering Heights and she says, um, uh, two people looking at the window. Uh, uh, I haven't read Wuthering Heights either, so sorry. (laughs) Just admitting things. The two characters are looking out the window and this is what she says about it. What is fatal in that vision is its subjectivity. Looking through the window, the two of them see different things, but neither of them can see things as they really are. And likewise, I was beginning to see my own fears and desires manifested outside myself, was beginning to see in other people's lives a commentary on my own. And I, I pulled that out because I feel like that's really talking about, I feel like that if you had to say what the thesis of the novel is, there's a little bit of that in there. Like mm. looking at the way other people's lives sort of function and then sort of seeing, okay, the way mm. I'm viewing their life, the things I'm thinking about what they're doing is a commentary on my own, which is, I guess, going back to what you were saying too, is like, we don't learn anything about the main character, except we learn about all these other characters and then therefore we know her. And is that Mm. like a deeper way of knowing a person than maybe like the emotional content of her character maybe? Or even just, I think it goes back to Kosk's deep suspicion of the novel and the deep suspicion that we could ever come to know another person, the deep suspicion that there is ever a single character or a single narrative just this this like sort of chimera and like that is a good that scene I'd forgotten about that particular line in that scene but it's so true too because she's talking to this neighbor who's um got you know these two ex-wives and a sort of son that gives him a lot of an adult sort of adult son I think who gives him a lot of trouble um, and we don't know quite what the protagonist is coming from, but we know that she has two youngish children and obviously there's some kind of, you know, splitting of the parental situation. And when they come across this boat of this family with the kids splashing around, it's so true. Like, what is that play school thing? Like, are you looking through the circle window or the square window? Huh? Like, are you like yeah. what they would see when they look across to that vision are just completely different things it's total projection and neither of those things are the same thing as what the family are feeling and experiencing and I just feel like it says so much about my like personal feelings about society and these sort of like collective farces that we maintain Mm. Mm. Um, one of which I would say, if not the biggest of all, often is like marriage <laughs> and there well, just this like n- the nuclear family yeah. in many ways, like yeah. in all of the sort of gender and class and race and hetero stuff that that package entails, just this, um, just that, that the absurd idea that the same picket fence could possibly make all if not most individual human beings happy and fulfilled (laughs) and just the thing that sends an absolute cold shiver to the core of my marrow is that the protagonist in the outline novels seems to be coming to this realization after having been married with children yep 
<laughs> Gosh. <laughs> Sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I just... <laughs> no, it's just, it's you know, I just... The laughter is one of... I just find it incredible how we can talk about these sorts of things. And like, I'm so grateful that I get to talk with someone like you about things like this and see things from a different angle, even just like a glimpse at it. And maybe that's what outline is like, is just a glimpse into this other sort of idea that, you know, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of humility in the idea. Like I can't dictate my point of view onto everyone else's point of view. And, um, you know, realizing that, and embracing that idea, I think, um, would be so helpful to so many in our world, you know, and I guess maybe that's, you know, a, a going back to aftermath, like talking to people who sort of started to project onto her and project onto her motherhood, like all these different ideas about what they think. But I mean, maybe that's what she's saying. Like, there's this, are you really talking about me in your critiques when you call me a narcissist and a self-pitying fool? Are you talking about yourself? Mm. yeah it just it's interesting in cusk's work too that um i've just realized in talking about it that sometimes i think i conflate her critiques of marriage with her critiques or i shouldn't even say critiques her questions about marriage with her questions about motherhood or parenthood i should say even more generally mm-hmm. and that like i think she does a better job than that conflation gives credit to in the sense yeah. that um, for a lot of people, like being a spouse is deeply fulfilling, but the picket fence isn't. Like it's in like the nuclear family unit isn't. Um, and for a lot of people being a parent is deeply fulfilling, but the picket fence nuclear family isn't. And for some yep. people, a parenthood goes with spouseness, And for some people it doesn't like, mm-hmm. It's just that the nuclear family model is in our society just it's this, God, it's it's inescapable legally, economically, socially. It's Mm. just the single baseline from which every aberration is punished to certain degrees. Mm. Mm. Um. I've got one more question. Well, two more questions for you, if that's okay. We've had a long chat, which I've really enjoyed. I appreciate. It's Cusk. She is the gift for conversation. She is, yeah. Um, I I read a few reviews and reviews of Outline seem to be either five star or one star, one of those great novels that, you know, people either hate or love. Nothing happens. It sucks. Um, (laughs) But one of the critiques that a few people wrote that was quite common in all those one star reviews was that... um, it's there's no emotional quality and i think we've talked about it like there's no internal there's no internal life here and i like to me it was a very emotional book do you how do you, I felt, how do you explain that like why do you think people feel like it's emotionless like it's because it, it's sort of like she is kind of removed there's a sort of like this she's sort of back here commenting on things but i don't think it's without emotion it's just like a deeper thing on and what what are your thoughts God, that is so disappointing and baffling to hear (laughs) because I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have brought it up. (laughs) Oh, well, like I had, it sounds like you had a really emotional response to that book and emotion, hugely emotional response to that trilogy. I do wonder, like, this is going to sound super bitchy, but I do wonder if, um, 
it may feel that way if you don't want to meet a book in the middle. It may feel that way if you're not willing to do that work while you're reading. And if you feel like doing that work is too annoying. If you feel like doing, if you feel like meeting a book halfway is eating your vegetables, then you're always going to hate a book like this. Yeah. I agree with that. There is nothing to be done. And it's like, I, I can only speak for myself, which is that just because you have to meet a book halfway for it to be good doesn't mean it's quote unquote hard work. Like it, I agree it's with part you. of the enjoyment of it. I agree. Um, <laughs> just, you know, being in the, in the workplace, like the way people talk about entertainment and books and film and stuff, like sometimes, like I had a guy try to explain to me how Mad Max Fury Road was boring. And he said, nothing happens. Like they just drive out and then they come back. I was like, are you serious? It's like one of the most action, like it's, how can that be boring? He said, no, it's boring. Nothing happens. What was the point? Nothing happens except women who are about to give birth to a man who's been raping them on mass for years in a row, finally have a shot at raising their children in freedom where they can eat (laughs) fresh produce instead of rations. Oh no. I just. I didn't think about it from that (laughs) angle. I'm sorry. sorry. (laughs) I was just appalled that he didn't like an action movie. (laughs) And it has explosions. Like that's that's, that's a guy who doesn't like that Mad Max was more about Furiosa and the women. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, well, there was, you know, obviously that film got all those critiques. But I guess, I guess I'm just bringing it up because I feel like the benchmark for, like you say, meeting a novel halfway or meeting any sort of, because I think film can be very similar to this, where you have to mm. sort of invest a little bit. You have to think a little bit, right? I feel like the middle is moving more and more towards this way and more people are less likely to meet it. It just seems like more people are more willing to, they want more entertainment and escapism, which I'm not, I get it too. Like I love that stuff too, but the art of the film and the art of the novel and and different art forms, it seems to be a lot of people just don't have the time for it, which I think is a great shame. Yeah. I sometimes am tempted to feel that way also, but like books, have never been as exciting as they are now in terms of access to industry. Yeah. Like this is, I still believe like what I said right at the beginning. I mean, you know, people, all kinds of people have always been writing and creating, but we, in a, we are living in an exciting time of people who were previously locked out of the mainstream, finally yeah. having access to the mainstream. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's exciting. I, I I don't know. Like this conversation we've had tonight is more time and words than I try to give ever to, like, quote, unquote, what people think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, for the most part, try pretty hard to not think about public opinion as a like group activity which i need to keep tabs on and like track the um various phases and whims of because yeah yeah like because like if i if i believed that 
a certain trend was happening and was getting better or getting worse, then how could that not affect my art? Mm. Like I really try to not brainstorm or glean anything. Yeah, man. (laughs) Doesn't mean I'm successful in that, but I try not to. No, I understand. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Just to wrap up, Pitch it like people are reading, like listening to us amazingly after this entire time, and they're still sort of going like, "Should I read this book?" <laughs> or just amazingly in general. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was interesting. I was very interested, Bree. I'm interested. Um, but pitch a book to people who are still unconvinced. Like, why should they pick it up? Oh, sorry. Are you looking at my cover of the book? Yeah, does it have the boobs taped out? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the book I got, you recommended the book. I was like, heck yeah, I went and picked it up from the library with my six-year-old son. Oh, gosh, don't look, bud. And so I've, because I've been reading it around the house, I had to tape over the nudity on the cover. (laughs) I have never seen that cover before, though. And frankly, I find it very strange that of all books to put a, what, like charcoal drawing of a nude lady with titties that you would put it on Rachel Cusk's outline. (laughs) Yeah, because there's no, like, you know, there's, anyway. But there's actually a note on the cover photograph in the back. It's actually from 1930. The photograph is an example of solarization, a technique rediscovered by Man Ray and the photographer Lee Miller. And then it's like this really interesting thing, like um, 1930, Paris. So, right. Yeah, it was, sorry. <laughs> sorry, it was a digression. <laughs> that was a, yeah, digression. <laughs> why, should people read, why should people read Outline? Why do you think it's such an important book? I'm not going to tell you to read it because it's important. I'm going to tell you to read it because I've not met a single person who's picked it up and not finished it in maximum three sittings. That was me. Because, yeah, because <laughs> it is very clear and very, like it's deceptively simply written. Like you yes. think it's simply written, but what it achieves is phenomenal. And it will reveal to you the ways in which you are lying about yourself and other people are lying to you. Mm. Oof, that was good. Well done. Good pitch. Mm. I would read it again. <laughs> yeah, read fuck. It. I'm going to read it again. I'll read it next <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, Bree. You're awesome. I really appreciate all your the depth of your mind and all the wonderful things. And I really do appreciate you picking this book. Um, for anyone interested, Rachel Cusk's outline would love to hear from you guys um, through the Words and Nerds podcast feed on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Always love to hear feedback about what you guys think of the books that we discuss and about our chat in general. But yeah, thank you, Bree. You're awesome. Thank you, Ben. This was fantastic. I had a real pleasure. Yeah, me too. Thank you.